Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Onikanagwea. Hi, everyone. Duncan McHugh here. Been a while, but I'm jumping back into the feed to tell you about a brand new weekly podcast I think you're really going to like. It's called Crime Story. It's hosted by Kathleen Goldhar, and every week Kathleen goes deep into a tale of true crime with the storyteller who knows it best. We've got an episode of Crime Story this week where Kathleen and I sat down. We had a really long conversation to go deeper into the reporting that went into the creation of Cooper Island. We talked about the lack of accountability in the way our criminal justice system works and the importance of honoring the stories that were shared with us for the series. Have a listen. The following episode contains difficult subject matter, including references to sexual assault. Please take care. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. This is Crime Story. Every week, a new crime with the storyteller who knows it best. residential school experience is clearly one of the darkest, most troubling chapters in our collective history. In June 2015, Justice Murray Sinclair presented his findings to the country. As the head of Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Sinclair had spent more than six years listening to stories of people who had been ripped from their homes as children taken from their parents and thrown into prisons that were masquerading as schools. What took place in residential schools amounts to nothing short of cultural genocide. One of the stories that caught the attention of journalist Duncan McHugh was that of 16-year-old Richard Thomas. Thomas was forced to attend a residential school on Cooper Island in British Columbia, a school he never left. Because in June of 1966, Richard Thomas died at the school. And the mystery surrounding how it happened has haunted survivors and the community for decades. Duncan explores Thomas's life and death and the stories of three other students who did survive their time at Cooper Island Residential School in his unflinching and heart-wrenching podcast, Cooper Island. Duncan, welcome to Crime Story. Ani Kathleen. So nice to have you here. So... Where was Richard living before he was taken to Cooper Island? So uh, the Thomas family was a big family. Uh, there, there were 16, 17 children. They're from the Halalt First Nation, which is uh, near Shemanis on Vancouver Island. The family lived for a time uh, on the outskirts of, of Victoria, and they were back and forth between the Halalt First Nation and, and the Victoria area. And... Tell me a bit about his family. He said it was big. Were they close? What did they do? Tell me a bit about the people he came from. 
Yeah, so we got to know uh, Belvie Breber, who uh, was Richard's sister. She said, you know, they were close and tight-knit. At the time, uh, they would have been considered poor. Uh, they didn't have a lot of means, but Belvie's father was hardworking. They had their struggles, uh, certainly. Their, Belvie's uh, dad had some, some issues with alcohol. and But I think one of the, the things that Belvie illustrated to us was that the issues of, of having children taken away really impacted the family. At one point, Belvie herself, uh, she had some health issues, and for five years uh, she was in uh, the Indian hospital in Nanaimo. And when she came back, there were a whole bunch more children in the family that she didn't even know. And she talked to her parents and they said, well, they just keep taking them away. Many of her brothers and sisters went to residential school. And that was her father's explanation for one of the reasons that there were there were so many children in the family. So let's talk about Cooper Island School. I know it was named or nicknamed Alcatraz. Yeah, the survivors have called it Alcatraz for obvious reasons. Throughout the hundred-year history, there were repeated instances of children trying to flee this school that's in the middle of the Salish Sea. And there's well-documented instances of, of children dying in attempts to get away from the place. And you have to think to yourself, what was happening there that children so badly that they would get on logs or that they would steal boats or, or you know, even attempt to swim in some instances away from the place. And these were children, like really young children were trying to get away. I mean, that adds to the despair of the place, right? These aren't even teenagers. These are kids. Yeah. In addition to looking into as much as detail as we could about the death of Richard Thomas, we investigated other deaths. And for example, we looked into the story of two sisters who tried to flee. And according to officials, they took a boat in the early morning hours and, and tried to get away. The story, the official story was that they were going to a dance on the on Vancouver Island, but this was in the middle of the winter. And British Columbia, it's it's not the snow and ice of other parts of Canada, but this is a this is a big harsh, water. harsh, big, you know, this is, yeah, exactly. And, and these two young girls, unfortunately, they, they perished. One of their bodies was found and um, uh, the other was not. But, but it's hard for me to fathom what would have been going through a child's head to try to attempt that journey. Yeah. Who ran the school? Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So it was run by the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, uh, which is uh, a missionary group, part of the Catholic Church. The Oblates have a long history of uh, going into communities to spread the word, to spread the faith. And the Oblates uh, were responsible for uh, running a number of, of residential schools right across Canada. So they they were the primary leaders at Cooper Island. Because of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and because of the work that Indigenous journalists like you and others have done, we really have, over the last decade or so, started to really understand what was going on in these schools, the deprivation, the hunger, the, the physical abuse, the taking away the language, the attempt to rip, as they said, take the Indian out of the child. But one of the most rampant, horrific parts was also the sexual abuse. And 
One of the people you talk to is a man, and sort of unpromptedly, when you ask him what it was like to sleep there, he asks, he says to you, do you mean sleeping or being sexually abused? So I can't even imagine what life was like there during the day. Night must have been a horrendous place. What did you learn about what their lives were like when they were supposed to be going to sleep? That was a really sobering moment for me, Kathleen, when I was talking with uh, James Charlie. Uh, We interviewed Tony and James Charlie, their brothers. And James, I I asked just a real simple question. I just wanted to to, to get him to describe what the sleeping conditions were like. You know, I wanted him to describe the the rows and rows of bunk beds and, and to explain to me what it would be like for a young child to sleep there. And, and, and I, you know, this was early on in the interview, and I thought, oh, my goodness, he, that he would instantly kind of go to that in his head, spoke so much to me about what the experience was like and what this elderly gentleman is still experiencing when, when asked about something as simple as, as the sleeping conditions at, at the school. Certainly for Tony and James and for Belvi, uh, sexual abuse was was uh, a gut-wrenching aspect of their lives at the school. But but here's the really upsetting thing, is that as we started to dig back into the records, it is very clear that school officials knew about the sexual abuse at the school decades before the 50s and 60s when James and Tony Charlie were there and, and before Bellevue Brewer was there. And not only school officials knew about the sexual abuse that was going on in the school, but police knew about this. Uh, the Catholic Church knew about this. Indian Affairs officials knew about this. And I'll tell you why we know that. We uncovered a document from 1939 where Again, several boys tried to escape from from the Cooper Island School. They successfully made it over to Vancouver Island. Um, And as often happened when children fled the school, uh, they sent police officers out to, to, to go back and retrieve them and send them back to the school. Usually that was the end of it. They would, the police officers would go and collect the children, take them back to the school. But in this instance in 1939, something uh, very unusual happened. The police uh, sergeant there asked the boys a simple question, why, why did you run away? And they began to tell him that of, of the abuse that they were experiencing at Cooper Island. And they had told their parents of, of what they were experiencing. The police officer talked about how the parents were absolutely livid did not want to send their children back to the school and in fact were so angry that they were ready to go over with shotguns and take out some of their concerns in violent ways, which they didn't do, I I emphasize. But that's how upsetting it was for the families to discover what was happening. So what did happen? So the police, they went over to the island and started interviewing children and they discovered that dozens of children were being abused by multiple people at the school at that time. And they recommended to the Attorney General that there be a further investigation and charges laid. Well, when Indian Affairs got wind of these officers who were doing this investigation, when the uh, local Catholic Church got wind of this, there were complaints made to the Attorney General that the police officers were overstepping their authority, that police officers shouldn't be asking questions of the children, and that the officers should be reprimanded. 
This went on. There were furious letters uh, back and forth uh, between Indian Affairs officials, the church, both saying that the Attorney General of B.C. should not be investigating this. As a result, two employees from the Cooper Island School are suddenly whisked away from the school so that no charges can be laid, and that is the end of the story. But what it said to me, I mean, as we were going through these documents of the police and the stories that they heard from children, we heard about sexual abuse going on with uh, in the laundry room, for example, at the Cooper Island School. That was particularly upsetting to, to read these gut-wrenching stories in the first-person words of small children talking about the, the abuse that was happening because we heard those very same stories coming from Belvie Breber about how all of the girls knew that going down to the laundry room was potentially dangerous because that's where abuse happened. So it was so disturbing to know that officials at Indian Affairs, the Catholic Church, the highest levels of the justice system in British Columbia knew that this kind of abuse was happening at the school and that nothing was done. And then generations later, there are still children being abused by predators in the school when people knew. And, and I think that's really the upsetting thing as we started to dig into the documents that became clearer and clearer to us, that you know there are many Canadians today who say they didn't know. They didn't know that history. They didn't know about what happened at Indian residential schools. But it is so clear when you start to go through the records that Canadians did know, that they, they were willfully blind, we'll say that at the very least, to the, the kinds of hardships and deprivations that the children were experiencing at the school. And so, you know, I, I used the example of the two sisters who tried to flee. You know, there was actually a, a short inquest into their deaths. And, and within 15 minutes, a jury d determined that, that there was nothing uh, untoward about what had happened. But again, it, it boggles my mind that, that someone wouldn't have asked the question, really? They tried to cross this strait, the, the open ocean, to try to go to a dance? That, that doesn't make sense. And you also discovered that the government knew that the schools were in bad condition almost right from the beginning, didn't you? So as early as 1907, Dr. Peter Bryce, who was a, a medical examiner, was, was hired to go and look into deaths in the schools in British Columbia in particular, but other schools in Canada. And it, he had well-documented evidence, which he shared with Indian Affairs, which he shared with Duncan Campbell Scott, the superintendent of Indian Affairs, that as many as 50% of children who were attending schools in the early 1900s were dying in some schools. That was very clearly documented, and Dr. Peter Bryce said that the conditions at the schools, the, the nutrition at the schools needs to be improved. And this was not a secret that was kept behind, uh, you know, within government bureaucracy. Dr. Peter Bryce in the, in the 1920s published his findings and, and shared it with Canadians, and yet this was ignored. And in fact, Duncan Campbell Scott in 1920 made attendance at residential schools compulsory. So, you know, Canadians did know. And, and that, I think, is the most upsetting thing, is, is that we knew in the 1900s, the early 1900s, that this experiment, and it was very much an experiment, 
of, quote, civilizing Indian children was having disastrous impacts. You know, not only life-threatening impacts on Indigenous children, but it was having disastrous impacts on Indigenous families, not only in, at the Cooper Island School, but, but in so many schools right across the country. Yeah, I was just going to say, I know you focus on Cooper Island, but obviously this is a story that is about the entire country and every single residential school that existed in Canada. All your favorite CBC podcasts are now available on YouTube. The best in award-winning true crime investigations, hilarious comedies, vibrant pop culture conversations, and even more audio series are all available on CBC Podcast's YouTube channel. You'll also find exclusive video first episodes, YouTube shorts, and behind-the-scenes content from our hosts and producers that you can't find anywhere else. So if YouTube is your go-to source for podcasts, just search CBC Podcasts and hit subscribe, and you'll never miss the latest update. What do you know about what happened to Richard? I mean, you speak to a lot of people, but unfortunately, Richard isn't around to speak about himself. So what do you know about what happened to him at the school? One of the things that Jody and Martha and I wanted to do was try to help Canadians and listeners understand this really complex history of the residential school policy which, which you know, there, there are well over 100 residential schools from, from coast to coast to coast. But we wanted to try to make it digestible and, and tell it through through one school. So we approached the community of Penelicate. They had been involved in, in ground-penetrating radar work for a number of years, long before the announcement of unmarked graves at, at the Tecumloops Residential School. Um, I had heard awful things about treatment of children at Cooper Island. And so we approached the community of Penelicate to see if, if they would be interested in participating in our podcast. They invited us to to go and make a presentation to the elders of Penelicate. And, you know, in the Indigenous community, elders are, are not just senior citizens. I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of like our Google, right? Like they're the repository of, of all our wisdom and, and knowledge. And and so I was I was a bit nervous that, that day that we showed up at Penelicate for the first time to present our pitch that, that we wanted to do a podcast about something really difficult about, about unmarked graves in particular. And there was just a palpable sense of, of both hurt and distrust um, amongst those elders. And I, and I understand that distrust because I've been a reporter and an indigenous journalist for 25 years now. I understand that, that it's upsetting when people come and take a story away. You know, that's that's been the experience of so many Indigenous people, so many Indigenous communities. And so I was trying very hard as an Indigenous storyteller to, to honor those stories. So they began to share, you know, some of their experiences with the residential school. They kept talking about this boy and this, this awful death that had happened. They talked about it because, you know, they drive by where... Richard was found in the school gym almost every day to get on the ferry. Uh, you know, the, the school may have been torn down in 1975, but it is still very much part of the living memory of the people of Penelicate because the community has grown up around the former school grounds. And so, you know, they, they drive by that place where Richard Thomas was found 
hanging in June of 1966. Almost every day to line up. It, the ferry lineup goes right past where the school gym used to be. And elders and former students and survivors have whispered about Richard's death for 50 years now. They've been talking about it quietly because there were all kinds of stories about what may have happened to Richard. Before you tell us what you actually learned, what did happen to him, what were the kids at the school, the community at the time told happened to Richard? So the official records say that Richard was discovered by two Oblate brothers. And as their version of events goes, as they told the police, Richard went to breakfast in the morning. One of the Oblate brothers uh, went off the island with a group of children, and it was assumed that Richard was with him, and Richard wasn't seen for the rest of the day. It was only uh, late in the evening, about uh, 8 o'clock or so, that they determined that Richard uh, was not around, and it was when they began to search the school grounds that they found uh, him hanging in the gym. That is the story that the two Oblate brothers and the principal of the school told told the police officers. But that's not what we heard uh, from from children. The police did interview three children. One of them is still alive, and we spoke with him. Uh, and according to him, uh, it was the children who found Richard hanging in the gym. Uh, they had been playing a game of uh, what they called shadow tag. And as a result of some confusion and, and, uh, and so, uh, it's, it's upsetting actually, as I, as I'm thinking about it, just kind of remembering, uh, how difficult it was for, for the survivor to share this story. But, um, he said they were playing and at the end of their, their play, uh, Richard was, was found hanging. I asked, it, it, the way that that story was told to me, I wondered if it was an accident. And he said it was very clear to him that it was not an accident. Um, it's one of the challenges of talking with people who are in their 60s and 70s and 80s about traumatic experiences that occurred when they were, when they were young children. Um, we know that trauma affects the brain in all kinds of different ways, that, that young children do all kinds of things to try to protect themselves from these kinds of traumatic events. And so trying to piece together 50 years later what happened on that evening uh, it was, was, it was, it was a complex task in part because the survivors have, have done their best to try to protect themselves from the awful things that they witnessed. How do you approach these interviews then? I mean, you're an Indigenous journalist. Hmm. This is your history as much as it is any other Indigenous person in Canada. Mm -hmm. And you know that the trauma of retelling, of being re-traumatized, all that is all there. And you're knowing you want to tell the story and get as deep as you can because you have a good reason to want to tell it. But also asking the people to do these things is so hard. So what have you learned? How have you developed as a reporter yourself, as somebody asking these questions about how to get to a place that's safest for all of you? One of the things that the elders said uh, when we had that first meeting with them at the at the elders committee was, 
We've told this story before, Duncan. We've told these stories over and over again. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission came to Vancouver Island and a number of of survivors from Cooper Island uh, went and, and shared their testimony. There have been criminal cases as a result of work that was done uh, by an RCMP task force that, that prosecuted a former teacher at the residential school at Cooper Island. So there were survivors who testified uh, in criminal court, in civil court, and shared their story there. They said, we've told our stories over and over again. What's it going to take for Canada to to get the message, to start to hear the truth that we've been sharing? Why should we pour our hearts out again? Why should we go to these difficult places for a podcast? And and that was a question that I had to wrestle with myself, that Martha and Jody and I had to wrestle with, was what are we doing? We're making a podcast, but what you know? How is this going to help? What what is this? What what benefit? And all I can tell you, Kathleen, is is that I, as a journalist for a really long time, I do believe that sharing our stories makes a difference. I mean, it it is crucially important that we understand history, particularly through the voices of the people that experienced it. For so long, those voices of survivors were ignored by so many people, by by government officials, by church officials, by justice officials. Those voices were ignored, and we need to hear them now because we are losing those generations who experienced that, and we need to hear firsthand, if only for the official record. But Canadians need to know today that those survivors are still amongst us and that what happened to them in the schools impacted them. So I think that that it is important to share these stories and and that's the explanation that I gave to the survivors. But that said, I do feel a duty of care to not harm these people any more than they were already harmed because you and I know, Kathleen, that the simple asking of questions can start to open up a whole can of worms for somebody. And asking something as simple as, what happened the night that Richard died, can take people into a place incredibly viscerally to a place that they have been trying to protect themselves from for decades. Yeah. And so, to me, the challenge of doing these stories is being 110 150% transparent about what it is that we're trying to do and how we work as broadcasters and podcasters so that they, the survivors that we spoke with, had as much of an understanding as possible and could give us their full prior informed consent. Because so many people have come to them, taken their stories, gone away and used them for all kinds of different purposes and and never checked back in again. And so we made that pledge. And I'll call it, I mean, that's a strong word, but we made that pledge that if you share your stories with us, we will, we're not just going to fade away and go back to Toronto. And I would hope that if you were to to talk with the people who participated in our podcast, that, that they feel that their stories were respected and that we treated them with care and did our best to honor the words that they shared with us. Well, certainly as a listener, I can tell you that that came across loud and clear. Hmm. Thank you. What were the stories that you heard about what actually did happen to Richard? Unlike the the official record, 
which, uh, you know, a police officer looked into it, interviewed two Oblate brothers and the principal of the school, and concluded that Richard committed suicide uh, because he was despondent. The officer looked into Richard's uh, notebooks. One of the amazing things we discovered about Richard Kathleen is that he was a writer. Uh, he was always uh, writing in his notebook, and the uh, officer looked into his notebook, and he found uh, three or four examples of Richard writing about death. The officer concluded that, that perhaps he had been fixated on death, and, and this was an explanation for his suicide. When I read those selections, it seemed to me that it was a boy who was doing creative writing. And yes, there, there were deaths. There was a story about a car crash, for example. Uh, there was a story about a person choking on a bone. It didn't surprise me, I suppose, that a boy who was surrounded by people dying in a situation, a place like Cooper Island, might be trying to process that by creative writing. But the, the, the official conclusion was that he, he was in, in a, an upset state that led to a suicide. But there were, there were too many things that didn't sync up with that, with that analysis, that official analysis by the police officer. For example, he was only days away from graduating from school uh, when it happened. He was about to leave the school. Um, that was uh, something very puzzling. Uh, he was doing very well in school with, in terms of grades. So, so as we began to piece together the story of Richard and who he was, there were other things that started to be red flags, if you will. Belvi recalled only days before Richard died, she recounted to us a phone call that she had, her last phone call with Richard, as it turned out. And Richard was talking about his upcoming graduation and wanted to make sure that his mom had, had set aside uh, some nice clothes for him. He had a private conversation with Belvi at one point. He said, I, I can't wait to get out of this hellhole. I just want to tell everything. And Belvi said to him, Richard, you can't, you can't speak like that. Because Belvi knew that it possibly wasn't a private conversation. In fact, it was documented that priests and brothers and nuns listened in on the phone conversations that children were having on another line. Uh, that was not an uncommon thing, and the children all knew that. And in this particular instance, the phone conversation with Richard ended abruptly. After saying this, the phone line hung up. That was the last conversation that Bellevue ever had with Richard, which led her to wonder if perhaps the fact that Richard seemed to want to share something about the experience and his experience at the school, if that had, had led to something uh, untoward happening to him. We spoke with other survivors at the school who told us about the treatment that he had suffered at the hands of one brother in particular. And when we discovered that brother's name, Brian Dufour, a number of pieces of the story began to come together in ways that were, were disturbing and upsetting. Because Brian Dufour was an oblate brother who was at the school for a couple of years. And in fact, it was Brian Dufour who had taken James and Tony Charlie to his family home in Montreal, where they were abused in the basement of the family home. And just to make it clear that these boys were abused after Richard died, 
So what happened to Brother Dufour? Brian Dufour was never charged. He was discharged from the school, and he was never charged for any of his activities at residential school. However, he was charged for sexual abuse decades later in the Cornwall area, where he was working as a social worker. Those charges were never followed through uh, because uh, he died uh, days after the charges were laid. So we began to, to piece together these things that were happening to Richard, which explained why a boy would suddenly perhaps take his own life. We sat down with a coroner, an indigenous coroner, Kona Williams, who's based in Ontario, and asked her to review the, the very brief one-page, two-page coroner's report from 1966. She said, there's not enough information here, Duncan, for me to determine how Richard died. It does seem that his death is consistent with hanging, for example, um, but I can't tell from these documents, uh, whether the the body was was looked at with the same rigor that I that, that we would look at a child, a sixteen year old child who died in in a school, in in this day and age, so so she said I cannot rule out that he may have been killed, but I can't. It doesn't point to that uh, at what I'm seeing in this investigation. So, in in some ways. We're left with all uh, lots more questions, Kathleen. I, you know, I don't. There is no smoking gun when it comes to Richard's death. But, but I'm so glad that you asked me to be on this show, Kathleen, because, you know, one of the things we were most nervous about when we were asked to do a podcast about unmarked graves and the deaths of Indian children at, at residential schools is is that we recognize that if by, by its very nature we were going to be slotted into quote true crime podcast you know we're talking about death and the the whole genre of true crime has become a thing in podcasting as you well know but but what we didn't want was was this to be a who done it you know there there was so much more to, to what we were hoping to share with people about A, Richard Thomas, but, but B, uh, the past experience of survivors at that residential school, but more importantly, the current experience of the community of Penelicate and their wrestling with those ghosts of Cooper Island. Those were all perhaps more important things than trying to get to the bottom of what happened to Richard. It, it wasn't just a, a whodunit exercise for us. For us, it was about putting a human face to the historic and contemporary tragedy that, that residential schools represent in this country. And that's one of the reasons why I so wanted you to be on the show and why I feel like this is so important to talk about. Because this show, this podcast, and sort of my 20 years of covering crime, quote unquote crime, has helped me understand that it's not just about the, the one death, the one crime. It's about what brings us to the point that this is happening to people. And so as Richard's death might not be conclusive as to what happened, everything that happened to him and everything that happened to his community, to Indigenous people in this country, is about Richard's death. Mm. And I feel that's, and this isn't to take away from the importance of having a conversation that's specific about something that happened at residential schools and the Indigenous experience in Canada, 
but I feel like there is something about crime that is important to take it out of the sensational and understand where is the society? Why does it happen? Who is it happening to and who does it affect? And that's the more interesting conversation in my mind about this stuff and the stuff that actually does slowly start to maybe chip away at who we are and have a bigger conversation about what we care about and where our priorities are, both as individuals and as a nation. And that's why Richard's death to me represents that. And and so when you're when you're looking at the bigger picture, I mean, to me, the larger questions raised by by the death of one boy, Richard Thomas, a boy who was a a, a writer, a boy who who had dreams of of being a priest, as it turned out, a boy uh, who was loved by his family, and, and a boy who whose death very much touched off a, a string of tragedies in his own family because of of the upset that it caused. The story of, of Richard Thomas, to me, is, is a much bigger picture of how these communities, First Nations and, and Métis communities and Inuit communities right across this country, whether they've had the opportunity to memorialize their dead, for example. You know, are there places that they can go to, to remember and pay honor to the children that didn't come home. I think that's one of the reasons that we we saw such a raw reaction from Indigenous people uh, in the summer of 2021 when the unmarked graves were beginning to be announced. Again, it was no secret. It, we Indigenous communities knew about those dead children. So it was no secret. It, but, but there was something raw and palpable because so many of those communities have not had an opportunity, do not have a place to go and pay their honor and pay their respect. So I think that's one of the important things that we we need to understand and take away from all of this is that that memory and that honoring needs to, to take place. And, and Indigenous communities need to be empowered to do that work so that they can begin to, to heal. That's certainly one of the, the important takeaways uh, that, that I see in looking into this one death of one boy. How does the lack of accountability affect that healing and that conversation you just talked about? Because in Richard's death, really, there was no accountability. And so much of the other stories we hear about, there is no accountability. Can you talk to me a, bit, a little bit about that? How do you deal with that as a community that wants to move forward? I think that's one been one of the, the most challenging things for survivors, and in particular, who have been called before, as I said, Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, before criminal courts and civil courts to share their story. They've named the names over and over again. But there have been so few people who have been held accountable because of the way that our criminal justice system works, because the Truth and Reconciliation Commission specifically was not about, it, it was in its term, very terms of reference, it was not about holding the staff at schools accountable. So I think that's perhaps one of the most frustrating things for survivors is that on the one hand, the truth-telling is an important exercise, but what seems to have been lost or forgotten or, or purposefully steered away from, in fact, I would argue, 
has been a level of accountability when it comes to to perpetrators at at the schools. And so, yes, there have been a small number of priests and and in some cases nuns uh, who have been charged criminally. And yes, all of the churches, the Anglican, the the United, the the Catholic Church, have all uh, offered some form of of financial compensation. But I think that there is still, amongst survivors that I speak with, a level of frustration about the the digging in of heels. For example, the release of records that, in particular, the Catholic Church has over and over again fought survivors in court to prevent you know the release of records and and the further examination of of what happened and and who may have done what the catholic church has over and over again resisted those those attempts at at further accountability i will say an interesting update you know after our podcast was run uh, the Oblates of, of Mary Immaculate did finally open up their records, something that they had resisted for years and years and years. The head of archives for the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, uh, Raymond Frogner, was invited to Rome and spent a good couple of days in the archives of the Oblates of Mary Immaculate and was able to look into some of the actual uh, personnel files he went there with a specific purpose, looking into the stories of some of the brothers that survivors have spoken about. Uh, he wasn't able to find uh, direct evidence in the personnel folders uh, that they uh, had, had committed abuse, for example. But that's not necessarily surprising uh, that, that these wouldn't be written down in the, in the official personnel records. But there was plenty of evidence that brothers and priests were moved around on a fairly regular basis, uh, that there were reprimands with regard to treatment of children, uh, that it was encouraged that some brothers and priests should perhaps leave the order. These were very evident in, in the records. He also found over a thousand pictures that they did not know existed, um, which he described as a treasure trove. Um, and so the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation are beginning to process and digitize and, and, and make sense of those records. And, it's, and it's, it's beginning to help paint a, a more full picture. So there's a moment in the podcast where you're speaking to Belvi, Richard's sister. And she's telling you about the abuse she suffered. And there's a very raw moment where you say, sort of stop. And then we hear you say, oh, Belvi. And it's one of the few times that your crack of being a journalist breaks a little bit open. Mm -hmm. This couldn't have been an easy thing for you personally to be hearing all these stories to be, and it's obviously not the one and only time this happens to you with the work that you do. How do you process at the end of all of this, at the end of your work, when you're going to bed or wherever you have your time to sort of think, how do you protect yourself? How do you process it? <laughs> um, thank you for asking that question, Kathleen. And 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 I I have to say here's here's where I'm going to speak to your listeners for a second, because again, I am very aware, and I think we're all aware that that true crime is a genre, uh, is very popular, and I understand as a listener that that it is incredibly engaging when a storyteller is telling you. You know, this gripping story, this mystery, 
when they are going down and, and doing the incredible work that investigative storytellers do of, of finding actual first-person accounts of something awful that happened. I understand as a listener how gripping that can be to listen to. I think it's really important, though, that we be aware of the toll that that takes on the people who are doing all of that hard work, who are asking those questions, who are digging into those stories, who are hearing these first-person accounts of awful things that happened. I say that because I'm not sure in the podcasting industry the way it is right now that we're paying as much attention to the storytellers as we should be. I said at the very outset, I'm an Indigenous storyteller. We're going to do this in a trauma-informed way to the best of our abilities. But, but you need to understand that, that I am not untouched by this. These are my relatives. These are my, I am not Halkaminam, but these are my relatives. You know, when I first met Jill Harris, who's in the opening of episode one, I make a reference to her being a short native grandma because I could see my grandma in, in when I met Jill Harris. So I am not untouched by, by what they experienced and shared with me. And my full credit to the CBC podcast, they said, you take the time that you need to take care of yourself throughout this. And that meant after these incredibly draining journeys of, of going and, and, and interviewing the survivors, that we took the time to, to do something as simple as sleep, which, you know, when you, you know, when you're buried deep in a podcast, you're just working, you know, around the clock, day in, day out. We needed to take care of ourselves mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, to, to, to be able to go through that long haul and do that work of honoring the stories that were shared with us, um, we had to take care of ourselves. And so you asked me, you know, how did it affect me? Of course it affected me, Kathleen. Of course. I, like I've been telling residential school stories for, the, for the, all of my 25-year journalism career, and, and it never gets any easier. But I think the shocking thing in talking with Belvi and James and Tony this time around was that you think you've heard the worst stories and then you hear one more and it's, and it's just like this happened to children. And as I said at the outset, this happened to children when Canadians knew it was happening and, and it didn't have to happen this way. And I think that's the most upsetting thing. And, and, all we could do was do our best to try to, as I say, honor the stories of the survivors, do our best to, in all instances, practice evidence-based journalism and double source and triple source uh, everything that we were finding out and take care of ourselves as best as we could. Well, Duncan, thank you for honoring their stories, for honoring yourself and taking care of yourself. And thank you for talking to us. It's really been lovely to talk to you. And thank you for your work. It's nothing but wonderful. Miigwech, Kathleen. It's, it's, really, uh, it's really a pleasure to, to sit down and have this long conversation with you. Thank you.
You've been listening to Crime Story from CBC Podcasts. We drop a new episode every Monday. You can get our next episode a week early on CBC Podcasts' YouTube channel or by subscribing to the CBC Podcasts True Crime channel on Apple Podcasts. In addition to early access, subscribers to our True Crime channel also listen ad-free. Crime Story is written and hosted by me. Our producers are Alexis Green and Sarah Clayton. Sound design by Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Jeff Turner. Our video producer is Evan Agard. Our YouTube producer is John Lee. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is CBC Podcast Senior Manager, and Arif Narani is the Director of CBC Podcasts. That was an episode from Crime Story, and they got plenty more episodes available right now, from the reporter who exposed Bill Cosby to the writer who solved one of Australia's most chilling cold cases, Crime Story guests include Gilbert King from Bone Valley, Eric Benson from Project Unibomb, Carol Fisher from The Girlfriends, and they got so many more. Find Crime Story everywhere you get your podcasts. Miigwech bezintayik. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.